Um, you know, over the past few weeks, we've had some amazing guest teachers. Remember last week and then the week before, and then next week we're going to have an incredible teacher as well. But before that, um, we had just jumped back into the book of Matthew. We're kind of on this rotation of doing the practices, practicing the way of Jesus together, and working our way through the book of Matthew. And uh, that's where we're going to pick up today. Now, hopefully, you'll remember that last time we were here, Alex walked us through the beginning of chapter 8. And this is where Jesus had just finished his famous Sermon on the Mount, and was beginning now to demonstrate the reality of that kingdom uh, through um, the miraculous. So he was doing miracles. You'll remember some of the stories that maybe Alex talked about, the centurion, this guy. He was like, I believe, even from afar, I believe you can heal, and he did. And it was like this beautiful expression of the kingdom. Now, it's at this point in the book of Matthew that we see Jesus, as one scholar puts it, move from teacher to Lord. He's kind of making this shift into not just teaching, but into actually doing what it is that he's been talking about. And of course, there's a ton of things to marvel at here in the life of Jesus. Um, But one thing I think that's really clear that we need to get is that these miracles that we're beginning to see him do are simply an, an expression of the kingdom, and they're meant to call people to greater faith and trust in the king himself. Are you with me? We talked about that last time, and I think it's pretty simple now that you've really got that. Um, uh, We're going to pick up in verse 23. Um, Just a heads up, a little fair warning. We are going to cover quite a bit today, and that is exciting, isn't it? For all the moms in here, just a treat for you. So let's buckle up. I don't know what that was. Hopefully, how high is the camera? Was it lower? Are we going to see that? Okay, Uh, it's fine. Pick up in verse 23. It says this, Then he, that's Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. (laughs) The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, You have little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, for some of us, this text is a familiar one. Um, If you grew up in church, maybe you went to something we call VBS in the summer. Um, If you don't know what that is, don't ask anybody. Don't worry about it. You didn't miss out on a whole lot, just some snacks and some time with a flannel board. And we all enjoyed that for you. Maybe you, you recognize the story from history or art or whatever, but this is a pretty um, common story that a lot of us know. But there is a bit more here than meets the eye as per usual with the Word of God. Now for the disciples, um, men who had grown up in a Jewish context, what Jesus did here meant more to them than we probably can conceive in our Western kind of Gentile mindset. The sea in Jewish culture had always been a symbol of wild and untamable power. Power. And in the Jewish writings, the sea remained a place of darkness and evil. That's what they understood it to represent. It was a threatening and a wild entity. Now, when a, when a Jewish man or woman thought about the sea being tame, their mind would probably go immediately back to the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. Do you remember that? Where Moses was um, leading the people out of Egypt, and he split the Red Sea. Do you remember that? It was like he, God helped him. Obviously, Yahweh did that, but through Moses. It was really cool. So they would have thought about that, or maybe they would have thought about the story of this this disobedient prophet named Jonah. Some of you have that in your nursery, the whale that swallowed up the man. (laughs) It's weird, but you know, whatever. 
so that's good. But anyway, they might think about him because in the story, I don't know if you remember, but Jonah was actually thrown into the sea. It's this like idea of him being given over to evil, thrown back into a place of evil. So, and then the, the fish, anyway, um, you should read that. It's a great story. All that to say, this is probably where their minds would have gone in trying to understand Jesus' relationship to the sea. So to have power over a storm, at least in their context, was to have absolute authority. So these disciples, people who had seen Jesus heal and teach and deliver people from the demonic, could now see that his authority also impacted the world, the elements of the world, which was in so many ways a declaration that he in himself carried the authority of Yahweh, which would have been a really big moment. And there's a lot more we could perceive here from the text, especially about Jesus, but there's a lot we can also observe about the disciples. Um, It's at this point that we find Matthew, our storyteller, highlighting for us um, this idea that other people, so people in just some of the verses before, um, people outside of the disciples, actually having a faith that was greater than what we had seen in the disciples themselves. Um, And and that's not to say, obviously, that the disciples didn't have faith. This was a lot for them to take in. They were in a storm. Not many of us have been in one of those, like one that was like making us feel like we were going to drown. Jesus wasn't sleeping on our boat. That would have been a weird thing and freaking out. All that. We've just given them a little bit of human credit. Um, but there is an element that the author's drawing us to to say like they are not quite there in believing who he was. And I love in the text that we can see Jesus and he gets up and he doesn't rebuke the people for waking him up, much like a lot of us would have. Like, what are you doing? I'm having a nap. This is not the time and all of that. He doesn't do that. He actually rebukes them for being afraid, for fear. That's, that's what he does. And he says to them, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And it's almost like you can hear him saying, still. Why are you still so afraid? And so in the text, we see him calling his disciples to believe him more. And it's through this miracle on the sea that he's building a case for why they should. Um, Now, I think much like a lot of us would, and some of us have, in light of really big things that have happened to us, we've had great encounters with God, this began to get the disciples moving in the direction of asking some questions. They're asking, what does this mean? And what sort of man is this who can do these things? And in that context, and even in ours, these aren't small questions. They're ones that all of us will have to ask at some point if we choose or have chosen to follow Jesus. And so as the text goes on, we're going to see Matthew, our author, continue to fill in the picture of Jesus' authority for us, and not just for us, but for the disciples, and begin to show them uh, gradually grasping and finding the answers to these questions that their soul were beginning to ask. So with that, let's read on to our next story. And it's going to seem a little bit weird. Maybe it'll feel like it doesn't connect, but remember your seatbelts are on, so... Buckle up. Okay, here we go. Verse 28. When he, I know, that was funny. I thought, thank you. <clears throat> when he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from the large herd of... Uh, From them was a large herd of pigs, a large herd of pigs were feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. 
So he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Fun story. Happy Mother's Day. Pigs in the sea, okay? Uh, So here we see Jesus after the storm, the disciples and them, they finally arrived to this other sea, uh, at the the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And actually, Gerald and I went there a couple years ago. Not Gerald, just Gerald and I. A group of Gerald, uh, people with Gerald and I, we all went together in a huge group of 50 people. But we actually went to this place and there was a restaurant that served, we could see where the, the cliffs where we think the... The pigs ran off, and there was this restaurant, and they just deep fry fish with their whole bodies, as they are. What a, nope, and I didn't get that. So um, anyway, we went there. Yeah, it was interesting. And um, yeah, so it's this little place called Gadarenes, and it um, it's, was a predominant community predominantly made up of Gentile people, so these wouldn't have been Jesus' people. And, um, and Jesus gets off the boat, and immediately uh, two demon-possessed men come running up to him. Welcome to Gadarenes, right? Um, uh, We know from the text that these men lived in a graveyard or amongst the tombs, which is a little bit creepy in and of itself. And um, we know that they were violent. The text says violent in nature. And that from their mouth, or really from the mouths of the demons that were possessing them, came a declaration that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. And this phrase, Son of God, will later be repeated all throughout our text by Peter, the chief priest who would interview Jesus, and a centurion who was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was being crucified. So this is significant for us to pay attention to. Now, the best explanation for the phrase Son of God is simply Messiah. It refers to um, Jesus as the one who has the right to judge the world and to put it back together as it should have been. Now, I want you to notice what Matthew does here. Um, This is the little bit of Bible nerd in me, which is like awesome. Um, But it's like really cool. This is a This is a cool way that Matthew kind of lays this out. The story in this second story that we're looking at is more vivid than the last, and it carries with it a connection um, through imagery that I think is powerful. If you think back um, to the story of the sea, and you think about the the wild waves and wind, and they were doing their worst to the boat, remember a symbol of evil. It was like evil all around them. And now you turn that into a human being. You have what we have just read. That the evil, that the violent torrents, the winds and the waves of evil were wreaking havoc on these two men. So Jesus gets out of this imagery, back into this imagery in the next section. Does that make sense? It's cool. Some of you are tweeting that out right now. Uh, So yeah. Um, Anyway, I think it's really cool. So this is what Jesus and his disciples find once they get onto dry land. And the literary connection is going to be important for us. It's going to give us some context in just a bit. So hang in there. Okay, text goes on. And it shows um, that Jesus' presence and his command reduces demons to begging. Did you hear me? That Jesus' presence actually reduces the demons to begging him. That is the power and presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Then and now. So in the text, our eyes begin to open. These demons knew that Jesus had the the power and the authority to destroy them. And the irony is they look to him and say, please don't torture us. When in fact they had been torturing two men for God only knows how long. And so they look to him begging and in desperation. And what were they asking for? 
They ask for permission, permission, because that's what they have to do. They have no rights, only what he allows them to do. It, a permission to go into a herd of pigs. Not my first choice, but I'm not really sure what you choose in moments like that. Um, another cool like, little thing you should know in the text is that you know, the Jewish people saw pigs as, as the most unclean animals. And so here we see unclean spirits going into unclean animals, the appropriate place for them to go. So, with one word, not with a conversation, not with conjuring up, Jesus speaks to them and he says, go. And he sends them into the herd of pigs and the pigs freak out and run down the side of the bank and, and that's it. And at the words of Jesus, these pigs and demons drown. And what we find here is that Jesus' presence and the kingdom was now beginning to invade the world in a hidden way to many people, but one that was recognized by the evil one and his forces. And this is significant in Jesus' um, time here on earth. This was a moment where we're now seeing, along with the disciples, that, the, that the, the evil forces in the world were beginning to respond to him, and it's almost like this idea that he's on the move. If you notice in the text, it says, is, are you gonna torture us before the appointed time? You see, they know. They knew that the time was coming, that this was the actual king. This is more language of deference to him than it was out of fear. They knew that he had the authority to do this, to drive them out. Now the text ends with uh, the men uh, telling the people what had happened to them, so I imagine they ran back into town, clothed or not, I don't know, and said, hey, uh, this guy set us free, we're fine. Does anybody want to hang out? I'm sure, I, don't know how that, I don't know how those conversations went back then. You know, I was like, hey, we're okay, and they're like, okay. You know, and, and so, so all the people come, they must have believed them. They come out to see Jesus, <clears throat> and they immediately ask him to leave to leave their region. Um, and, and we asked the questions, were they afraid? Could they conceive that such a thing had even happened? Did they see Jesus as a man or someone practicing witchcraft or magic? I don't know. Or was his glory for them too great? I, I don't know. And to be fair, I think most of us fear what we can't understand. So perhaps they found themselves in that space. Either way, uh, we do know that he and his disciples left. They got into the boat and they headed back to the other side of the sea to Capernaum, which was um, a, a town that Jesus was familiar with and often went to. Now, we have one more section of scripture to read and I feel like we're doing great. Are you feeling good? I am feeling jazzed up here. Now wait till you get more jazzy in a second. I'm gonna tell you something that's really important. Now, in this text, um, chapter 8, we find this actual climax happening. What we just read is like kind of like if the music was beginning to swell, this is the moment. So if we look back at the beginning of chapter 8, we see that Jesus begins by doing this tiny little healing of healing a leper. Nothing, no big deal, right? We do it all the time. And then he moves on and he heals a centurion from afar, which is actually a declaration to us that Gentile people, those of us who are not Jewish, would be invited into the kingdom of God. And the music begins to swell a bit more. And then we see Jesus healing a fever and beginning to do more healings and casting out more demons. And the music is growing for us in chapter eight. And then we get to this story of the sea and we see that he now has dominion over creation. And we're starting to go, who is this man? And disciples are going, who is this man? And the world is going, who is this man? And then at the end of chapter 8, we see him now having authority over the demonic, over evil. And he, and he, in his rightful place, is declared the son of God. 
by the evil forces. And all of us are going, what? And the music is like, what? And it's so good and it's so loud and this is our climax and we're going like, this is significant and here's why it's significant. We're about to turn the corner into chapter nine. And chapter nine is significant because it's about to mark for us Jesus is beginning his journey to Calvary, to Jerusalem. In his journey of his life, this will mark the time when he gets back on Capernaum, he'll start making his way up to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. And what's significant here is that we are reading over and over and over again that he is in fact the Messiah, the one who said he would come. And we as the readers are taking that in, we're going, oh my gosh, in chapter eight, we thought this was about pigs, it's about so much more, we're about to turn the corner, we're making our way to Jerusalem, and we're all going, surely he must be the son of God, right? And we're going to need to believe that if his crucifixion is going to mean for us what we know it means. So isn't, okay, are you jazzed now? (laughs) Chapter nine, here we go, on fire, and we're excited. Jesus stepped into the boat, crossed, and came to his own town, which is Capernaum. Uh, Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on the mat, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. I don't know why it sounds like British. Every time, this, this fellow is blaspheming. Do you know? It's... Every time. I've read it so many times this week. It's here. So now you will too for the rest of your days. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. So, beginning to turn our corner and Jesus finds himself in Capernaum. And once again, he gets off the boat and surprise, he's met by people in need. Now we're not surprised because we keep seeing this as a pattern. Now in Mark chapter 2, when Mark's telling this story, he tells us that these people were actually anticipating Jesus' arrival, that they had actually packed out a house because they were excited and so ready to hear him preach. And then we're also told by our text that the teachers of the law, or the Pharisees of the day, those people who had been after Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, trying to catch him and really... um, really discredit him in every way, shape, and form, were there too. And we're already actively beginning to just kind of speculate about what's going on. Now, of course, there's a lot that could be said here, but for time's sake, I'm going to summarize, and I'm going to try to do that quickly. You know me. That's kind of funny. Uh, Okay, so there's a paralytic man. He's brought to Jesus by his friends, and he's laying on a mat. He's placed in front of Jesus, like undeniably there. And then in verse 2, it says that Jesus saw their faith. Who is it that he's talking about? Whose faith did he see? His friends. He saw the man's friend's faith. Now, um, 
I, I, there's a scholar by the name of Dale Bruner, and he's awesome, and he, he kind of helps us understand this kind of faith when he says this. He says, faith is not simply a passive acceptance of truths, a weak resignation that just believes. Faith is often depicted in the Gospels as a courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion. And this is what we find in this man's friends. In this moment, I think I would expect the men to be begging or to be afraid of Jesus, not knowing what to expect. And, and yet, like Jesus does with us so often, he moves towards them. And it says that he saw their faith, their ability to put their trust in him to do the thing that they needed him to do. And so it's from this place of faith, and I'm sure the man, too, had some faith, or I don't know what was happening. The text doesn't tell us, but it's from this place of faith that we see Jesus respond to the man. And this is significant, because notice that Jesus responds to the depth of who this man is. He does not start with the outward pain and oppression, but he looks deep into the soul of the man and he says to him, your sins are forgiven, which is another way to say your soul has been healed and rescued and set to right. And I can only imagine the hush that fell over the room as everyone began to ask themselves, like we would, who is this man who has the power to forgive sins? Who is he? And I love that as everyone's kind of wondering this, you know, and the, the member of the Pharisees are, this fellow is blaspheming. They were doing that in their minds. Jesus responds in verse six, and he says to them, it is the son of man, or in other words, the Messiah, who has the authority to do this. The text goes on and we find Jesus healing the man physically. He does that, he tells him to get up, pick up his mat and walk. And so this man leaves their gathering whole, healed, both physically and spiritually. And we read at the end of our text that everyone praised God who had given such authority to a man. Now, each of these passages are undoubtedly pointing us to the reality of Jesus' authority. Hands down, easy exegesis of how we understand this. Now, in an authority that we're seeing, at least in Jesus's life, for those of us who are following him, there's actually an invitation for us to join him in that authority, to walk as he walked, to join him in this great crescendo. Now, um, in chapter nine, he heals someone of their sins. So if you can imagine, remember chapter eight was like, ah, like, that's not a crescendo, but sort of, that was like sort of a crescendo. <laughs> I remember it from clarinet days. Anyway, long story, another time. Uh, not good clarinet, so very bad. Uh, this crescendo, right? It's like, ah, uh, and then he's, so they're like, Jesus, he has the authority over the evil, of, over evil and darkness and sin. And in verse nine, we turn the corner and we start to see his road to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, we also see that he now has the power to forgive sins. And it's not just the enemy saying to him, you have power, you are the son of God. He is saying, I, I am the son of God. The one who has the power to forgive sins is, is here among you. Now in each of these stories, we see Jesus' power over sin and evil, whether it be the torrent of a storm, the demonization of a man, or the sickness of a soul and body, Jesus has the ability to speak one word and reality changes. So as we look at these scriptures, <clears throat> I, I don't want us to miss this, we can't help but draw a line between physical affliction, oppression, and evil. 
That's a real thing that we're seeing here. It's clear that Matthew, our author, saw these things as interconnected. Sickness and physical affliction are both products of the fall, of when sin in Genesis chapter three entered the universe and disrupted everything, marred the world with sin. And we know that from from our good theology that we've studied, but also from our own lives. And we know that sometimes, as sin is an influence over us, there's also a demonic reality to the sickness and oppression that we encounter. If you look over quickly, if you haven't shut your Bibles, to verse 16, we're gonna just flip back to where we were a couple weeks ago. And we we read here, when evening came, um, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out out the spirits with a word, Remember that? And healed all the sick. These two realities, hand in hand, sickness and the presence of the demonic together in one space. In Acts chapter 10, we read that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went out around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. What I want you guys to see here is there's connectedness between Jesus' power over sickness and over the demonic realm. See, all throughout the healing motifs of the gospel that we've just even been reading, Jesus never once ascribes a divine reason for sickness or affliction. Instead, several times he attributes them to direct demonic involvement. And whether it's the chaos of nature or the manifestation of demonic spirit or a fever like Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus rebukes them all as the real and very work, of, um, the real and work, uh, real, nope. <clears throat> Jesus rebukes them all as the work of a very real enemy. And here's what I want us to get. In this way, I think we might look at Jesus' establishing of the kingdom of God as a movement in which Satan's dominion is dispelled and pushed back in order to make room for the gracious reign of the rightful king. This is how we read and understand what it is that we've taken in tonight. Now, before I go any further, I wanna make a little disclaimer. It's not even little, it's actually big. So don't write me or tweet me or text me about it because I'm so bad at responding. Anyway, don't amen that, some of you. Now, hear me. Um, I wanna say that... that, that um, It doesn't mean this text isn't saying that every single physical ailment is an affliction from the devil himself. That's just, that's the bottom line. But but I do want to say that sickness itself is at least an indirect dimension of the enemy's work, if not his direct involvement. And that's what's significant here. So, okay, so you're like, I'm bored, I got it, I'm very theologically sound now. Um, Why does this matter? Why does any of this matter here? Listen, if you don't take, if we don't take Matthew's worldview seriously here, this idea, this concept of Jesus eradicating, pushing back the kingdom of darkness and evil and sickness and suffering, if we don't learn to understand that that these two things are a product of the enemy, then we will go looking for an explanation in other places. And for disciples of Jesus, that's a dangerous thing to do. Now, we all know that sickness and suffering is a part of everyone's life. It doesn't matter what your station or your status or your title is. Everyone in this life is bound to encounter some form of it or another from one time or another, which means that this conversation uh, is one that the world is having. We're all asking questions like, where does sickness and suffering come from? Why does it happen? What does it mean? We're all wrestling with those questions. Some of you tonight have friends who are in the hospital or afflicted or sick, and you're asking yourselves these very questions. This is a tangible thing that we all know we encounter on a regular basis. And unfortunately, humans 
particularly those of us who follow Jesus, have a propensity to answer this question by folding it into God, as opposed to God being above all of those other things. We like to fold God into stuff when really he should be folding us into it. Do you got that? Okay, good. So you guys got that. Now, now here's where um, two problems lie, and I want to talk about those um, tonight. The first is this. Often in our pursuit to understand suffering and sickness, we bypass much of what we actually see in the scriptures and make assumptions about what God is doing or what God has willed, and we neglect to embrace the theology that we actually find here in tonight's text. It's easy to do this in our culture, specifically in our Christian culture, to just move that direction. In the context that I grew up in, the Christian context I grew up in, there was a common belief that if I was not healed or if my suffering did not stop, then it must have been God's will that that had happened. And that message is one that a lot of us have been taught over and over again. And yet when we look at the scriptures, we see that message is nothing but antithetical to the life and the message of Jesus. His will, as we've talked about before, is always healing and always wholeness and always restoration, always a push against darkness and evil, always. And so we often, knowingly or not, reduce the message of the gospel, the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God that is here and moving forward to, to a kingdom of a God that reflects some kind of narrative that points us to a God who's passive, and dismissive who's restricted in authority and in power. That's not the message that we proclaim. And I think in the same vein, it's startling to realize how we have this weird propensity as disciples of Jesus to, in our suffering to jump to the narrative of what is God trying to teach me? Now, now um, I wanna say this, your suffering is not a lesson to be learned. Now, I'm, I'm not dismissing what we learn and the value of the things that there's more gold I have gathered in places of suffering than almost anywhere else. It is, it is a, a thing of Jesus that he's actively and constantly teaching us things. But this is not how he does it. He doesn't will evil to happen so that we can learn a lesson. That's not the God that we follow. I believe a lot of us have allowed that question to become a distraction which actually keeps us from standing with Jesus against the evil and oppression that is in our lives. I know it's been true for me. So that's the first problem. Tiny, but we can handle it. Next, uh, second problem. Um, especially if we're going to embrace this worldview of Matthew, this thing that he's presenting to us. Um, if we're going to embrace this reality that, that Jesus came to eradicate, to wage war on the kingdom of darkness, over the demonic, over sickness, over oppression, then it means we also have to embrace him as our authority. And, and for many of us, I know at our core, this is problematic. I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm passionate, just a passionate woman. And that's a a gift. Uh, it is also a burden, you know, in a lot of ways. Because when I'm passionate and I believe that I'm passionately right about something, I'm going to hold that until the cows come home, as we say in the South. Uh, uh, so that's a problem. So I often do this. Authority is a thing for me. There's a little bit of sometimes there's a tug of war. I've mentioned this before from time to time. And, and it's not just me. The question of authority is a, a burning issue of our time. We challenge authority in every sphere, in family, in church, in school, and even in our community. We push against it. And to be fair, as a generation, we've seen the breakdown of the institution of authority, right? 
from, from marriage to government, from, from the police to our parents, what we were taught was, that was supposed to be our safety net of society is no longer able to keep us safe. And so there's a response that all of that's generated in all of us. It, it forces us to either adopt or embrace this narrative that it's every man or every woman for themselves. No one and no thing is to be trusted. And so personal loyalty seems to be our only option. But I want to say this. I believe this is one of the greatest deceptions of our day. And I think it will be for us as a generation. I think it will keep us from believing the narrative that is ours, the truth and reality that is ours in the kingdom of God. It will keep us from experiencing the joy of partnership and freedom with God and his people as we move the kingdom of light forward. But the thing about authority is it's costly, and we all know that. And it's scary for so many of us, and trust me, I... I do not mean to diminish what authority has been like in your life. I do not know. I know some of your circumstances and they're horrific. And I know that authority has been distorted on every level. But that was man, not God. And, and, and that's not to, again, disqualify it, but it is to say that, that Jesus' authority is like nothing else on this planet. It cannot be compared to those people we know here on the earth. It's undeniable, despite what our feelings tell us, that we are people who are hardwired for connection. And really, the connection is, is to be connected to one another, but it's greater than that. It's, it's to be connected with someone bigger than us. All of us, if we just sat quietly with ourselves, if we just listened long enough, I imagine that we would find within ourselves a desire to feel safe and secure to feel order and to feel like someone could take care of us. There's an innate desire built into us, so much so that there are study after studies showing that without some central authority, people and societies and even kingdoms will move into chaos without it. This invitation to Jesus' authority, it is not robotic, it's not authoritarian. He's not hammering his fist one way or the other, but he is simply inviting. It's an invitation. There's no demand. That's why it's so counterintuitive. Even our parents at some level insist that we act like we're their kids. You know, like, what's up with that? Anyway, uh, they do that, right? This is nothing like that. There's an invitation for you to come and to find wholeness and peace and healing. So to embrace this worldview, to embrace this idea of what we're seeing here in Matthew means that we have to entrust ourselves to the one who has all the power. To yield ourselves to him and to trust that his authority is one that will always be working for our good. He is perfect in that. Never working against us and always working for us. I know this is hard to hear some, for some of us. Some of you are nines on the Enneagram, and so you're like, cool, man, I merged. I'm in. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of you are like, yeah, I got it. I'm there. Um, but I know that still for a lot of us in this room, we have yet to give Jesus authority in every area of our lives. I think it is an illusion to live life as a disciple and experience all the signs and wonders, especially the things we have been experiencing without actually trusting him with our whole lives. 
Those realities are rooted in different things. And one will leave you susceptible to aimlessness when the storms of life come, when the enemy comes, it will leave you susceptible to him and his influence. The other is deeply tethered to the great reality of Jesus and his peace and his promise for us. And the invitation is extended tonight. I think that, that, um, that many of us still need to come under his authority. And that means we got to let go of some of the ideas we have about how our life goes. I mentioned I'm passionate. And, um, and I often am passionate with God and not in the best way. Um, it usually turns up again as an argumentative thing. Last week I was um, being woken up multiple times in the night. I told you that's when he likes to talk to me because I talk a lot during the day. And so he woke me up to talk about the things, the areas in my life, go figure, I had no idea we were really going this direction, the areas in my life where I wasn't submitted to him, where I had told him that my way was better than his. And we've been talking about it for months, and I've reasoned out very thoughtfully and intelligently, I might add, um, all the reasons that I was right and he was wrong. And so I just held on for dear life to the things that I thought were right. And, and in the middle of the night, he woke me up and said, will you choose to obey me and to trust me, trust the good that I have for you or not? And you know, after a couple nights of that, I was like, yeah, okay, all right, yeah, absolutely. 100% in, why are we having this conversation even? Go back to bed, me too. Let's do that, right? <laughs> for so many of us, it is about actually wrestling with God in this area and letting him win. In some of us, it's about our sexuality. It's a thing we've deemed as appropriate or okay or whatever. And in his word, he's laid out very clearly what is true and life-giving and good for us. And the authority of Jesus means he gets all of it, not part of it. For some of us, it's about letting go of bitterness or the vindication we feel is ours. And it's about saying, your authority, Jesus, your, your ability to act on my behalf is greater. And for others still, there's a release of an outcome you need to give to God and say, this is yours to determine. It's yours to work out. It's yours to lead me in. You get to have authority here. Now, before I wrap up tonight, I want to mention just one more thing. <clears throat> um, and it's a bit of a rub, which is kind of annoying. Um, and I find it in my own life a lot. Because this decision to enter into and to submit ourselves to Jesus' authority, while significant, is something that doesn't just happen in one moment, it happens in many moments as we journey with Jesus' disciples. And sometimes this rub is um, subtle and other times um, it's loud, but um, it's often um, easy to miss, so I just want to point it out. Um, especially as we've looked at this text. Here's the reality. When it comes to these two things, the kingdom of evil being pushed back and you submitting yourself to Jesus' authority, you can't, have, you, you can't have it both ways. What I mean to say is um, you can't say you want Jesus to push back the evil in the invisible places in your life or in the lives of the people that you love and at the same time insist you are your own authority. That's not how it works. Or another way to say that is that um, if there are areas in your life where you want Jesus to be over, specifically those painful parts of your life where you're like, come on in, do the thing, heal the ankle, do the what, whatever it is that we're asking him to do, you can't just have him in the painful parts. He must be in all of your life. That's how this works. An invitation for him to do the signs and the wonders before your eyes is also an invitation for him to search you and know you. And to allow him to speak with authority about that next Netflix queue or that porn addiction or that laziness or that isolation, it's to give him license to do those things. 
Listen, if he has the power to calm the wind and the waves, to deliver people in a moment with a word, is he not worthy? Is he not the one we should be submitting ourselves to in all yieldedness? Has he not proved his sufficiency in his goodness? Has he not proved his mercy? Why can he show it in, in, in the miraculous and yet we can't let him show it to us in the broken, deeper places within our soul? We can't have it both ways. And the call for us tonight is to invite him into those spaces as well. To embrace his authority is to decide to do so. To submit ourselves to that reality and to accept that it's a package deal. As we move into the things of the spirit, as we press into that place, the call tonight is that we'd also be pulled back into the place of yieldedness and discipleship to him. If we want the signs and wonders, if we begin to love that more than him, that we have missed the mark. And the call for us tonight is to remember that it's about him, that he is the one that we love, he is the one that we behold. Now, this is gonna look different for a lot of us. It's gonna be different for you than it is for me. You probably won't get a late night wake up call. I don't know what your life is like. Um, I will get many more in my lifetime, it's a guarantee, which could get interesting, but anyway, we're gonna press in. Either way, there's an invitation extended to you tonight. For those of you who have yet to ever yield actual authority to Jesus, the invitation for you tonight is to life. To life unmarred by sin, to say, yeah, it's not just the signs and wonders, it's all that it means, it's that you are in fact Messiah the one who can save me from my sins and from myself. For others tonight, it is about um, allowing Jesus to, to take us back to those places that we know still exist where we're yet, we've yet to give him authority, to maybe shut our mouths long enough, that's for me, to actually listen instead of saying like, but you haven't done this, and you certainly didn't give me this sign or this word or this wonder. And, and to be quiet enough to say, if he's saying like, but I've asked for this place. And it's there that I first wanna do a work of wonder before your eyes, if you'll just let me. We had a word earlier today that um, Jesus wanted to, to take people to a place of actually knowing his love. And I think for so many of us, this is the place, the yieldedness to Jesus is the place that we find the greatest and most mesmerizing love if only we'll let him take us there, which is the hard part. Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray.